So I don't know if you're a morning or an evening person, how you would describe yourself. And I don't know what your, you know, dietary preferences are, but for all you breakfast people, I'm talking to you. Uh, if you're a breakfast person, you're, you're in the Pastor Brian Club. He's a big breakfast guy, for those of you who know him. He's not just a guy who's big on breakfast, he's a, he, he likes a big breakfast. So he's a big breakfast guy. Uh, on his sabbatical, as Pastor Nathan just prayed, is concluding today, um, I, I was just wondering if we could kind of set an over-under on how many Uncle Herschel's Brian has had on sabbatical at Cracker Barrel. I'm going, he's been gone eight weeks, I'm going with eight Uncle Herschel's. So you can decide if you think it's more or less, uh, but Brian has, if he's had zero, I will be shocked and amazed, like total reformation in his life. So even for those who are not breakfast people, you got to admit that a good hot breakfast just hits the spot every once in a while, and today's passage is about a day when Jesus cooked breakfast for his disciples after he got up from the dead. Join me in John chapter 21. We'll read the first 14 verses. Hear the word of the Lord, and as is not our common custom here, which I wouldn't be opposed to becoming a custom here, if you're able, please join me in standing for the reading of God's Word. John chapter 21, verse 1. After these things, Jesus manifested Himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, and He manifested Himself in this way. Simon Peter and Thomas called Didymus, and Nathanael of Cana and Galilee, and the sons of Zebedee, and two others of His disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to Him, we will also come with you. They went out and got into the boat, and that night they caught nothing. But when the day was now breaking, Jesus stood on the beach. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. So Jesus said to them, children, you do not have any fish, do you? They answered him, no. And he said to them, cast the net on the right-hand side of the boat, and you will find a catch. So they cast, and then they were not able to haul it in because of the great number of fish. Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. So when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put his outer garment on, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. But the other disciples came in the little boat, for they were not far from the land, about 100 yards away, dragging the net full of fish. So when they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire already laid and fish placed on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish which you have now caught. Simon Peter went up and drew the net to land full of large fish, 153. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Verse 12, Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples ventured to question him, who are you, knowing that it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and the fish likewise. Now this, now, this is now the third time that Jesus was manifested to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Remain standing as we pray. 
Father, I ask that the same Lord Jesus who appeared on the beach beside the Sea of Tiberias in this passage and provided for His disciples would by the Holy Spirit appear to every heart right here and now. And You would provide for us out of the bounty of Your Son for our deepest need. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So that prayer reflects what I believe are the two parts of the passage, verses 1 to 11 and verses 12 to 14. 1 to 11, Jesus appears, and verse 12 to 14, Jesus provides. In 1 to 11, there are four parts, and in verse 12 to 14, there's one part. We'll take it in that order. First, verse 1 to 11, Jesus appears. We know from verse 13 that this was Jesus's third post-resurrection appearance of the disciples after He was raised from the dead. It's actually kind of hard to harmonize the order of all the post-resurrection appearances from the Gospels, but in John's account, this is the third in sequence. The repetition in verse 1 of that word manifested, it appears two times, you can see it there in verse 1, is super important to see and understand. It appears again in verse 14, the final verse. And so everything in between verse 1 and verse 14 is an inclusio. It's a, it's a story that John is giving us about an actual historical event intended to convey vastly important meaning for the Christian faith. This word manifested two times in verse 1, translated revealed in some translations, here in the post-resurrection accounts is connecting all too obviously for those who've read the Gospel of John up to this point, what he's been saying about Jesus the whole time. Jesus has something to reveal. And the something Jesus wants to reveal is who he is. In chapter 2, John speaks about Jesus revealing his glory when he changes the water to wine. In chapter 17, John writes about Jesus revealing the Father's name. We could give many such examples in John's gospel of Jesus revealing God. In chapter 1, Jesus, uh, John talks about Jesus exegeting God. That's the Greek word. It's, it's to draw out from what is there and bring out for us to see. Even so, it appears from this passage that the full awareness and realization of what God had accomplished in the gospel labors of Jesus, His death, burial, and resurrection, had not yet fully coalesced in the hearts and minds of Jesus' own disciples, although they had already seen Him twice raised from the dead. They had seen Him. They had interacted with Him. Thomas had touched Him in the previous passage. But yet the disciples, though hopeful, could not fully grasp what they were seeing and experiencing. What did these things mean? Was this going to be the new norm? From now until eternity, would Jesus just sporadically appear in times and places that we don't expect? Would there be unpredictable episodes of the manifestation of the risen Jesus? Is He going to walk into this room today? Would He only appear to them? Or would others see and experience Him also? Would they have to try to persuade people that they actually saw Him? Or would He do the persuading Himself? 
The New Testament does answer many of these questions for us. For example, we know from 1 Corinthians 15, verse 6, that over 500 people saw Jesus at one time. Before we get lost in those questions the disciples might have been asking and thinking, let's see how John presents this account of the third post-resurrection appearance of Jesus to his disciples. He sets the appearance up, as I mentioned, in four parts, verses 1 to 11, and then one part, verses 12 to 14. The first part of the first point, Jesus appears, is verses 1 to 3. Who was present and what were they doing? These are important details for John. First, who was present? John's a stickler for details. Not space filler, as we often say here, to make his book longer. He's dropping meaningful information in the mundane of the details. Like in John chapter 2, what kind of vessels were used when Jesus turns the water to wine? Jars for Jewish purification. That's an important detail. What about in John chapter 3? When Nicodemus approaches Jesus at nighttime, another important detail. Or chapter 4, when the very thirsty, very sexually devious woman at the well left her water pot when she ran back to the city, no longer thirsty, now satisfied. The details in John are not haphazard. They're not just space filler. He's not trying to make his book longer. He's letting us know something. There's a lot of detail in the who was there and what were they doing in verses 1 to 3. Who was there? Simon Peter, Thomas called Didymus, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of Jesus' disciples. If you do the math, that's a total of seven. Now look at the detail. Simon Peter, both names. His given name by his mom, dad, on his birth certificate, and his nickname from Jesus. This is both his Greek and Aramaic names. It speaks of the fellowship and relationship that this man has with Jesus. Thomas called Didymus. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago, both Aramaic and Greek names for Thomas. Didymus, as we mentioned a couple weeks ago, when Thomas, doubting Thomas, touched Jesus' side, it's Thomas who is called Didymus. Didymus means twin. This is John's emphasis that the one who missed out on Jesus' first resurrection appearance has missed nothing at all in God's kind providence. Thomas called Didymus is there again. And then we find Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee. This detail hasn't been mentioned before. And Nathaniel hasn't been mentioned since chapter 1. Here we are in the last chapter, and we get the detail of where he's from. He's from the place where the people were enabled to see something of the glory of Christ in the turning of the water to wine. In chapter 1, when we meet Nathaniel for the first time, we're seeing Nathaniel see that Jesus of Nazareth the son of Joseph, that's a quote from John 1.45, is the omniscient God of the universe who can see you even when you're way over there under a fig tree. And Nathaniel is the same person who stands before the omniscient God of the universe, Jesus of Nazareth, and realizes that he's also the one spoken of in Genesis chapter 28, when Jesus explains to him that he's the only ladder 
between heaven and earth, the Son of Man. Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee. Cana's also that place, not only where Jesus turned the water to wine, but it's also the place where the nobleman's son in chapter 4 was healed. There was a lot of buzz about Jesus in Cana of Galilee. And here's Nathaniel seeing the glory of the risen Jesus all over again. As if for the first time, the sons of Zebedee, John has not referred to them this way. That's their most common designation in the Synoptic Gospels. James and John, the sons of Zebedee. But John hasn't referred to them this way the entire gospel. They're often included with Peter in the inner circle among the twelve who's also in this boat. And then we find that there's two others of his disciples. We don't know who they were. We don't know their names. We just know that they were extraordinarily blessed. So who was there? We see things like little detail with massive meaning. Nathaniel's the guy whose city saw the glory of Jesus in chapter 2. Nathaniel's the man now outside the city by the seashore seeing the glory of Christ in chapter 21. Peter, James, and John saw the glory of Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration. Now they're seeing the glory of the risen Jesus cooking them breakfast beside the sea. The two others who John doesn't feel the need to name for us, which is a very rare situation for John, who, as I already said, loves detail, I think are certainly, John tells us, two of his disciples, but they represent people like you and me. There's room for more in the presence of the glorified Jesus. doesn't matter who they are. It matters who he is. But what were they doing? That's the seven people who were there, but in our first subpoint under Jesus appeared, what were they doing? It's important to observe this in the text. John not only, not only tells us there are seven men, but he tells us what they were doing, when they were doing it, and how much success they had. It's all in verse 3. Peter said, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we'll come with you. They went out, got in the boat, and that night they caught nothing. Some have pointed out that Peter's I'm going fishing may be an indication that he had not truly done what he said that he did in Matthew 19, 27. When in Matthew 19, he told Jesus eye to eye, face to face, we've left everything to follow you. Somehow in chapter 21, he still has a boat. Apparently he didn't sell that to give up and to follow Jesus. So some have wondered, is this fishing trip a bad thing? Some commentators suggests that it might indicate apostasy. He not only denied Jesus, maybe he's betraying him like Judas. He's going back to his old way of life. All his hopes shattered, even though he had been at two post-resurrection appearances, he's going back to the job he held before Jesus called him. Some commentaries say that this is not apostasy, but it's just some kind of unthinkable behavior. Others suggest that it's Better that Peter and his friends use the time doing something profitable than sit around idle doing nothing at all. Others point out that the disciples still had to eat and fishing was the best way they knew how to put food on the table. Well, we could conjecture all day long. John doesn't tell us. Here's the point I believe John's making from verse 3, the final phrase. That night, they caught nothing. We know from verse 4 that these men had been on the water all night long because when Jesus appears in verse 4, the day was breaking. So they worked a long graveyard shift, but the paycheck was not auto-deposited for all their labors. 
Just last summer, I went on my first and only guided fishing trip. It was two days at Lake Guntersville in Alabama, which I'd never heard of before this trip. A friend arranged all the details. And this friend from Texas knows that I'm a city boy. And he made up his mind that I need to experience bass fishing. So last summer, he sets up the trip. We go for two days. We're on Lake Guntersville, Alabama. It's beautiful. It's surrounded by hills, kind of small foothills, sort of mountains. Just really beautiful place. Uh, saw some bald eagles, had a great time. It was an awesome fishing trip. The problem is that we caught in two days with a guide in a fancy boat, all the rods and reels, all the tackle you could imagine, every gadget on the boat. We caught a grand total of three fish in two days. I outdid my friend. I caught two, one each day. He caught one the last hour of the last day. Our guide said that there's something like a code of honor among fishing guides that prohibited him from fishing with us. So what he did all day, both days, was he just took us to the fish. He set up our poles with all the right gear. We literally just had to swing it over in front of his face. He would do all the work for us. He told us exactly where to cast it. He even showed us on the fancy fish radar gadgets that he had all over his boat that there were fish everywhere. Every once in a while, our persistent accusations that all of his gadgets were some kind of hokey uh, sales pitch, you know, uh, they were, he was pulling the wool over our eyes. There was actually no fish in the whole lake. Eventually, we persuaded him to sporadically cast a line with us. He would throw right where we were throwing. He would reel in a way that looked exactly like we were reeling. And nearly every time he cast, he reeled in a pretty nice-sized bass. We would do what he did. We would get nothing all day long, for two days. With three rare exceptions, what was our problem? Were there no fish in the lake? Obviously not. In fact, the week before we went, the World Bass Fishing Tournament was held at, you guessed it, Lake Guntersville in Alabama. All the best bass fishermen on earth reeled in large fish all day long, all week just a few days before we were there. And they threw them all back. My friend and I concluded that we couldn't catch fish because we were just worse than rookies. I'm just too much of a city boy to even catch a fish on the best lakes in America with the best guides, with all the gear and the big professional boats and everything to go with it. What was Peter and the boys' problem in John 21? They were pros, right? They knew where to cast, they knew where the fish were, they had the right nets. All the tackle, all the settings were right. Their livelihood depended on it. They were born into the family fishing business. Jesus called them when they were on a boat fishing. They had done this since they were knee-high. But if Peter were standing here in this pulpit preaching this sermon today, he would not tell you the infamous big fish story after a long night of work and all that he caught. He would tell you that he was less than successful on a long night of work and even less successful than this city boy was at Lake Guntersville last year. I caught two. He caught zero. Here's one of the best lessons we can ever learn in life. You're not good 
at the stuff that you're typically good at because of all the schooling and all the great training and all the gear and all the personal experience you've ever had. You, you are successful because God is gracious. And if he removes his hand of blessing, you will fall flat on your face. And one of the best favors God can ever do for lots of us is let us make a fool out of ourselves. Because we're good at stuff without giving all the glory to God. With everything that he gives to us, we should be like the moon reflecting back to the, sun, the light of the sun to all the people. When we think that we're capable without God, or we make an idol out of our success, 1 Corinthians 4, 7 has an important series of questions for us. What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Your big bank account and your empty nets are both owing to God's kindness to you. Catching nothing was the best thing that could have happened to Peter and his friends on this long night of work. Letting them fail at what they thought they were so good at was a tremendous expression of the kindness of the risen king so that they might become sensitive to hearing his voice and following his commands. Dear ones, your success, if it's making your ear less tuned to the voice of the good shepherd because you got this, ain't Jesus can come along for the ride. He'd be a nice added extra, but he's not essential. If all your success is making you less tuned, less sensitive to the voice of the good shepherd, it's not a sign of his blessing. It's a hindrance to real blessing. To have everything in the world without Christ is to have nothing at all. Sometimes God makes you feel the emptiness of your net so you'll be ready to embrace someone, not something, far better than what's in the nets when they get full again, if God so pleases. This leads us to our second consideration, verses 4 to 6. Notice here, Jesus shows up, which is why our first point is, Jesus appears, second point, Jesus provides, but our second sub-point under number one, the appearance of Jesus. Do you think that Jesus knew the answer to the question in verse five? Catch anything? Of course he knew. They could have said, not yet, but they said, no. They didn't have fish fables to tell. Jesus just gave them a simple instruction. Hurl your net on the right side of the boat. As he gave that instruction, I can almost hear him whispering under his breath, simultaneously summoning all the trophy fish in the Sea of Galilee to swarm to the right-hand side of the boat. Because in verse 6, Jesus gives a promise. You will find a catch. You can't guarantee that unless you get to tell fish where to go. I learned on that fishing trip last year that there's terminology for the right and the left. Because if I'm driving the boat at you, and you don't want to get run over by me, and you tell me to go right, it's that way for you. That's your right. This is my right. 
So I learned last year that the starboard side is the right side when you're facing the boat, and the port side is the left side when you're facing the boat. I may have just said that backwards. It shows how much I know. So whose right hand was it, Jesus? Cast your net on the right side of the boat. Well, obviously, he saw where they were casting it, so they understood which side he was talking about. Maybe he gestured, just said, toss it over there. Here's what we do know. They did not know that it was Jesus. Can you imagine professional fishermen working all night and catching nothing? Some of you are tired today because you, you did not get a good night's sleep. I don't know who among us got no sleep last night, but that's how these men felt at this point. They were not only tired, they were frustrated. They were irritable. Have you ever been hangry? These dudes didn't have any food. They were fishing to eat. They were tired and hungry. And if you want to see Jordan Thomas be less filled with the Spirit, find me in that predicament. Who does he think he is? He doesn't even have a boat. He's sitting over there building a campfire on the seashore. We're the pros. Prior to this conversation, do you think that they never cast their net on that other side all night long? You guys know the definition of stupidity or insanity? Do the same thing over and over, expect a different result. Do you think that they only cast over here? They never cast over there? Stands to reason that as professional fishermen, if they were out all night long, maybe once, they threw it on that side. But when these men gathered the nets from this side of the boat, and they collected the weights and untangled the web, and they each grabbed a part of it, and they hurled it onto this side of the boat, and it fanned out and landed on the water, and the weight sunk, and they started to pull the cord, and the weight started to gather, and the net ballooned out. This is what we know. They were not able to haul it in because of the great number of fish. Here's the point. When these men's nets were miraculously full of fish, Jesus' net was mercifully full of them. He was less interested in the catch of fish than he was in catching the fishermen. The fisher of men was interested in catching the men. He wants your heart. He wants your life. He wants you to fling yourself, which in a moment, Peter then does into the water. Hurl not your net, hurl your life into the arms of the risen Jesus. Dear ones, long, hard, unsuccessful nights are one of the greatest gifts Jesus could ever give to you so that you could find that there's no match for the mercy of the risen Jesus. That leads to our third sub-point, verses 7 to 8. If there was ever a it-had-to-be-Peter moment, this has got to be one of them. The same guy who in verse 3 suggests to go on a fishing trip is the first one to leave the boat in verse 7. This time, he didn't invite anybody to come with him. Sights set on Jesus, the same man who had walked on the water in a previous episode to come to the risen Christ, now throws himself 
deep beneath its surface to swim as fast as he can to get to the man on the shore. While Peter was growing weary from the long night, we know he was tired. We can suppose that they were hungry. All of a sudden, the man who got no sleep and had been throwing nets all night long had an unusual jolt of joy that outmatched the biggest adrenaline rush that any of us in this room have ever had. While his arms were probably fatigued from throwing the net this way and helping his brothers hoist it back in so they can throw it that way, this man's arms all of a sudden morphed into Michael Phelps' competition freestyle swimming in a nanosecond. He swam, we're told in verse 8, about 100 yards in world record speed, I presume. This is the spirit of John's love for the meaningful mundane. We're told that Peter did something before he threw himself into the boat. What did he do? He got dressed. Now, I don't know when you guys take your kids swimming, how often you encourage them to put on more clothes before they jump in the water. Isn't it interesting that that's what Peter does? Almost nobody interprets the meaning of strip for work to mean no clothes at all, but appropriate attire for fishing Loincloth, not your outside robe, which would have had long, not fitted, draping sleeves, and it's not very easy to hoist a net, especially when you're trying to do that with three, four, five, six, seven men at the same time. It would get tangled. You would take off your robe. You would have on something like a lighter linen undergarment robe, something like that. But Peter adds more clothes before he jumps in the water. Leon Morris points out in his commentary on this verse with some historical support and some important biblical support that it was only appropriate to make a religious greeting if you're wearing a proper robe. The beloved disciple, I believe John, who's in the boat, said when they're hauling in this big heavy net, it's the Lord. We don't know if the net made it in the boat before Peter made it out, but we do know that he was wearing a big robe that had to be heavy in his 100-meter swim, but he put it on, I believe, because he was going to make a religious greeting. This is the Lord. We know later that they did know that it was the Lord. Peter put on his robe because he was going to greet his God. Is your soul dressed for what Ezekiel calls preparation to meet your God? How long has it been before you put on a proverbial robe to adorn yourself in what the Psalms call the beauty of holiness? And do what James chapter 4 calls, draw near to God. Leads to our fourth and final sub-point. Number one, it's verses 9 through 11. I want you to carefully notice the sequence in verse 9. This is the breakfast time. 
The sequence is threefold. The disciples, including Peter who swam and the others who were in a small boat dragging a heavy net full of a lot of fish, they all make it to land. That's number one. Second, they see a charcoal fire already there. Third, they see fish and bread already placed on it before they bring their big net full of fish to Jesus. Here Jesus is making a grilled fish sandwich for his guys when they get to the land, and he's even toasting the bun for them. The point John wants us to make, again, in the meaningful mundane is, I believe, something like this. It's not about the food. Where'd the bread and the fish come from? Many commentators say that's another miraculous provision in this passage. Just like Jesus got a coin out of a fish's mouth for a guy who needed to pay some taxes, Jesus maybe, instead of using a net, just told a couple of the fish to just go ahead and jump out and fillet themselves and land on the charcoal fire. Somehow or another, there are already fish on the grill. But the point I believe Jesus is trying to make is not the food, but the fuel. Not what's cooking but what's heating, what's being cooked. The type of fire. Do you see it? Verse 9, it's a charcoal fire. There's only two times in the whole Bible where we find a charcoal fire. The other time is three chapters earlier in John chapter 18, verse 18, when Peter is denying Jesus as he's conveniently warming himself in the courtyard of the priest beside, you guessed it, a charcoal fire. There's a powerful lesson here. John wants you to smell verse 9. And he wants that smell to take you back to a place in your memory. You know what it's like when you smell something that you used to smell at your great-great-auntie's house. (laughs) And then somewhere along the line, 20, 30 years later, you get a hint of that same smell. And all of a sudden, your mind is back where you were those decades before. Imagine if it was three days, uh, sorry, three chapters before, maybe just a couple of weeks before. Smells can take you back to a time and place in your your memory. Peter was being invited by the risen Jesus to the moment when he denied the soon-to-be-crucified Jesus. The gospel writers, again in their attention to detail, tell us that when Jesus was When Peter, follow me carefully, see this. When Peter was standing beside a charcoal fire, warming himself, denying Jesus, the synoptic gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, tell us that Jesus made eye contact with Peter. That's a little important detail. Now Peter is soaking wet beside a charcoal fire warming himself as the same Jesus is cooking breakfast for him after he rose from the dead. The only thing Jesus was interested in filleting was Peter's soul. He was interested in the heart of the fishermen, not getting the guts out of the fish to cook them. There was a thick smell of charcoal in the air, but to Peter it smells like the inconceivable love of Jesus for undeserving sinners. Do you know what Jesus loves to do for people? I told you that He loves to make your nets empty 
so you can find yourself caught in his net. But you know what else he loves to do for people? He loves to let his gospel love tear you all the way down. Take you back to your lowest spot. If I had a mind to do it and was not too apprehensive to do it myself, I might say, let's just take a break from the sermon for a moment, and for the next two or three minutes, lean over to your neighbor and tell them the worst thing you've ever done. Jesus loves to take you to that place. Not to condemn you. Not to condemn you. But to restore you. If you thought Peter's 100-meter freestyle dressed in a big robe was impressive, take a look at verses 10 and 11. Where seven men could hardly pull one net into a boat, Peter hoists it up all the way to Jesus by the campfire by himself. He already had fish to feed the men. Why did he want the net of fish to be added to the grill? Because... Jesus is pleased to use some of the fruit of the labor that he himself produced when they obeyed his command to throw the net the direction he instructed for their own nourishment and for their own encouragement. Isn't it so sweet? In the heart of our Lord, that when his children obey him, throw the net over there. Okay. That's all they did. Throw the net over there. They did it. They obeyed his word that although he already had fish to feed them, he also pulls a few of the fruits of that obedience out for them to taste as well. Well, here's what I'm trying to say. Jesus loves to sometimes pull out a little piece of the fruit of what he's producing through obedience in our hearts for us to see and enjoy. Now, I'm a firm believer. He shows you about 2% so you won't get proud. A ton of thought has emerged to try to explain, provide a satisfactory answer for why John makes the effort to give us another detail in this text, how many fish there were, 153. Pretty specific number. As one of my seminary professors used to say quite often, I'm now prepared to give you my most humble and accurate opinion. I don't know. <laughs> Why are there 153 fish? I don't know. So that leads us to our last point. <laughs> Not only does Jesus appear, but Jesus provides. This is verses 12 to 14. It's, I believe, the main point of the passage. It's why the title of the sermon is Come Have Breakfast. The point that I want to make from verses 12 to 14 12 to 14 is that Jesus provides. The same Lord who filled their all-night empty nets is now feeding their hungry belly. I just love this so much. It shows us a portrait of the resurrected Jesus that's so important for us to embrace by faith. Jesus knows that these seven men now know that it's really Him. but he's not asking any more questions. He's just letting them process it as they eat a hot meal together. I can just picture it. He flips Thomas a piece of grilled bread. 
Peter's still soaking wet, wringing out his robe. So first, since Peter's hands are occupied, he flips another piece of grilled bread to Nathaniel. Nathaniel's wondering if there's a cup of wine coming like Jesus made in his hometown. It's like a beachside Lambert's. Jesus is just dishing out hot rolls to everybody. And then he tops it off with catch of the day, grilled fish. And the guys are just sitting there eating and processing. Is this real? Verse 12, none of the disciples ventured to question him, who are you? Why? Because they knew that it was the Lord. I love it. He just keeps feeding them hot breakfast and lets Peter smell the charcoal Let's the boys take in another bite of a warm breakfast after a cold night of work. And no one dares to ask him a question because they know that it's true. It's him. It's really him. One commentator said there's no mention of Jesus eating in this passage which had earlier been done by Jesus. Maybe he did eat here. John just doesn't mention it. Here, what John does want us to know is Jesus' reassurance of these men. He's meeting their physical needs. He serves them as he did in John 13, the start of the week before he died, when he took a towel and washed their feet. He's just serving them. This is the heart of your Savior. He's not asking you what you can bring to Him and what you can do for Him and how much you can prove to Him. He's just serving you. He's meeting you at your lowest point. He wants you to smell a charcoal fire. He wants you to remember all the times that you failed not to crush you, but to sweetly and tenderly nurture you in His love. Commentator goes on to write, this was just a time for them to adjust to a new eschatological situation. What does that word mean? Pastor Jordan. This is the inbreaking of the end times. This is the beginning of the new new. This is the start of everything getting fixed. This is the food that's a foretaste of the age to come. When there's not only going to be one glorified body, and a bunch of still fallen though redeemed sinners. But this is a foretaste in this meal of an age to come when we all eat in only glorified bodies with the risen Jesus. Commentator goes on to say this is symbol laden. This meal where these men are just eating and processing questions about the realities of the risen Jesus. They know it's Him. In a culture, he writes, where symbols were more highly regarded than in our own to speak to them powerfully as they meditated upon it about the Lord's continued presence. Like this food is so close to you. I'm closer than that to you. That's what this meal represents. The bread and the cup going all the way in is just a little picture of the nearness and the satisfying sufficiency of our Savior. This is the last water fishing trip that we ever hear about these boys being part of. From this day forward, their pond became the world. 
world full of broken and lost people. After they left this meal, as far as we know, they were spirit-filled, relentless, Bible-saturated, fishers of men with unbreakable nets, we're told, to hold the souls of as many as God will bring in, men and women, boys and girls for whom Jesus died, just like we're told, not just 153 fish, 153 large fish. Jesus is going to count every single one that comes to him through the net of gospel preaching. He's not going to lose one of them. These men understood that they were about to become anglers for Christ with the rod of his gospel word among the masses of lost and dying humanity. So I have two applications and I close. Number one, I think there's two main ideas in today's come have breakfast passage. Jesus appears and Jesus provides. If you don't get the first, you can't have the second. You cannot have the blessing of Christ without the presence of Christ. Otherwise, you're undoing the essence of the gospel. You're fundamentally using Jesus as a means to an end, which is why I abhor what is called the prosperity gospel. Jesus is not your lucky rabbit's foot to get something from him. In fact, every gift he gives you is like a ray of light from the sun that you're supposed to trace back up to its source. He's both the means and the end of all of his saving work. So the big idea of the passage is when Jesus appears, Jesus provides. The truth is this, we need the risen Jesus more than we need anything else in the world. How much longer are you gonna continue to fish all night in your own power? How much longer are you gonna hold on to what you think you're good at doing when Jesus has breakfast ready on the seashore. When are you going to jump out of the boat and go to Jesus? Good news, you can't provide for yourself. And Jesus will lovingly bless you with empty nets all life long as His aim to reel you in to the net of His loving heart. Jesus knew these men's greatest need was Himself. He knew their greatest need was his gospel love. So next week, Lord willing, we're going to hear about the remainder of this passage where Jesus sweetly restores Peter to himself while he smells the scent of this charcoal fire. But before Jesus went for Peter's heart, I want you to hear this today. He went for his belly. He wanted Peter to experience his tender love as the on-ramp to his talk with Peter about loving him. Peter needed to know Jesus' love for Peter before Peter talked about Peter's love for Jesus. That's the order of this passage. I say to you today, friends, that Jesus is saying the same thing to you that he said to these men on this seashore when they were finally at his feet. Come have breakfast. Get close to Christ. Let him meet your deep need with his all-sufficient supply of grace and mercy. Come to Jesus. The second application is so similar, it's an expansion on it, and this is it. Jump or row to Jesus. You ever been so busy trying to hold life together, doing everything you know how to do, things seem 
to be getting worse by the minute. I've been there so many times. The disciples don't need another few hours of fishing as the sun rises to finally find the secret spot on the lake. Peter and the boys fished all night and caught nothing. Their best was empty. Meanwhile, Jesus already had fish, as we've talked about, on the grill, on the shore. They didn't need to work longer or work harder. They needed to get to Jesus as quickly as possible. Do you have trouble in your soul? Do you have some needs deep, deep in the fabric of your heart? Good news. We know somebody whose name is Wonderful Counselor. Go to Him. Listen to Him. Nestle up close to Him. He'll feed you out of, out of the bounty of His supply. Here's the principle. Jesus already has everything you need. And you can't have any of it without having Him. Even if these men's nets had been full all night, I think that would have been a curse rather than a blessing. But even so, it still would have only lasted for a moment even if it weren't a curse. You can have all the training and all the skill in the world. You can be a professional fisherman in whatever category you want to put it, but without Jesus, no matter what else you have and no matter how long you work, your nets are always going to be empty. No matter how full they look to you and everybody else around you, to have everything and not Christ is to have nothing. To have Christ and nothing besides is to have everything. Listen to the command of the risen Jesus. And no matter what you leave to have Him, if you have Him, you will have everything that satisfies. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, give us Jesus. In His name we pray. Amen.